Well, hello and welcome back from our break, of course. Uh, welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and over break, yet again, a person of color is killed by police. Yet again, we are summoned to say their name, Dante Wright, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Yes, we must see them always, and we must say their names always. But here is something else we must not look away from. Get out of the car! Get out of the car now! What's going on? What's going on? You're fixing to ride the lightning, son. Get out the car! You received an order. Obey it! I'm I'm honestly afraid to get out. Can I? Yeah, you you should be. Get out. Back up. Whoa, hold on. What's going on? Hold on. My door. Oh, my God. AO4, OC just deployed. Get out of the car and get on the ground now. You're going to get it again. I, I don't even want to reach my seat. Take your seatbelt off and get out of the car. That was a traffic stop last December in Windsor, Virginia. The uniformed soldier at the wheel of that SUV is Lieutenant Karen Nazario. Those are Windsor police officers, Joe Gutierrez and Daniel Crocker, demanding that Lieutenant Nazario submit to them. Gutierrez is, what, is the one you hear warning Lieutenant Nazario that he will, quote, ride the lightning. And then he assaults Lieutenant Nazario with pepper spray. This is policing in America today. This is racist, authoritarian, and wildly, needlessly violent. We keep being told that the deaths of George Floyd or of Dante Wright or so many others are the result of individual failures or circumstances. The prosecution of Derek Chauvin has presented a string of senior police witnesses, police witnesses, to say that Chauvin broke the rules. He broke the rules as he murdered George Floyd. And in nearby Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, the police chief has already said that it was a tragic mistake and he stepped down today and it was caused by one of his officers who stepped down yesterday, who fatally shot Dante Wright when she thought she was tasering him. There will always be individual stories and and individuals, of course, must be held to account according to circumstances in each case. But at the same time, we must not miss the larger story here. To fully understand the death of George Floyd or Dante Wright, we need to see that their deaths were the logical end result of the way policing works in America. A culture of needless force and organized systemic racism. All of it right there to see that video of Lieutenant Nazario driving while black and while Hispanic. Lieutenant Nazario was in uniform, an active duty member in the U.S. Army. But not even that was enough to calm Officer Gutierrez, who described this as a, quote, high-risk traffic stop. Watching this video is so easy to understand why Dante Wright is dead, why George Floyd is dead, why Breonna Taylor is dead. Why Eric Garner is dead. Indeed, what's harder to understand is how Lieutenant Nazario is actually still alive and able to bring the lawsuit that has now forced the dismissal of officers Gutierrez and Crocker. And we should, of course, be grateful that Lieutenant Nazario is alive and that he was able to bring this lawsuit because it has given us a window to see the system of policing that so many others have not survived, like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Dante Wright. Saying their names is important But to honor their names, we have to do more. I'm so sick of saying this. 
The system must change. Pushing individual officers, as important as that is, will not get the job done. Bringing Derek Chauvin and Kim Potter to justice is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We need the kind of transformational policing that LBJ championed on civil rights and voting rights, something that could not be done back then. That's what they said. It was too, it was too much. But now we have Democratic lawmakers in every single city, mayors, who are unwilling or incapable of challenging the police unions that are right wing, that endorsed and organized for Donald Trump. If Democrats, and many of them are progressives, cannot stand up to the police unions, and the best that they can do is call for some folks to be fired or name streets after BLM, what is it going to take? So we need Joe Biden to lead and for all of us to find the levers of change and lean on them so hard that traffic stops like the one that Lieutenant Nazario survived stop happening in America. It's too much. When are our lawmakers that are supposed to be on our side going to have the courage to make systemic change. How many lives, how many mothers and fathers and sons and daughters need to be needlessly murdered for literally nothing? What is it gonna take? So we have to keep pressuring those who have the ability to oversee, who are in charge of the police forces in America, and of course the president, to do something sweeping and systemic because we have the largest uprising in America last year. And if that didn't do it, we have to start looking at power and saying, what is it gonna take? What did it take for LBJ to sign civil rights and voting legislation? All right, we have a great show today. I am so glad to be back here live. And Dorsey is back. Thank you to everybody for dealing with us yesterday. Uh, we had some YouTube glitches and I am not sophisticated enough to understand how that stuff works. Uh, so we are gonna rebook everybody. We had an amazing show talking about Amazon and some great panelists, but they will be back, we promise. Uh, but today we have an awesome, awesome, awesome show. Uh, we are gonna be talking about universities and the control that they have over cities across America. And later we're going to be talking to Alex Koch and Jordan Zacharin about today's news and some of uh, Alex's latest stories. We will be right back. You've heard me talk about Sunset Lake CBD. Uh, it is a farmer-owned owned company that ships craft CBD, their products, directly from their farm, their independent farm, to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has literally something for everybody, so many different products that we all love, tinctures, gummies, salves, and coffee, coffee, to help with stress, aches, and pains. It was actually an original dairy farm in Vermont. It was the Ben and Jerry's, like that Ben and Jerry's uh, farm. And they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp there. Uh, when you are a supporter, a customer of Sunset Lake CBD, you are supporting sustainable agriculture that enhances rural communities and creates meaningful employment in the community. We're talking about the opposite of Monsanto. These are small farms with uh, you know, a supportive infrastructure. They, they are minimum wages, $15 an hour. The employees, the employees own the majority of the company. 
And on top of all that, they decided they believe in independent media like our show and like the David Pakman show. And of course, the majority report, that's who they choose to support and advertise with, which is really, really kind. Um, I talk about them all the time. I uh, have a new tincture. I have used it. I, you know, I was on vacation um, last week and I had some like sleeping issues. I had a lot of pain. I was doing yoga. I was hiking. Dorsey, I know you like to use this product, but I got to just say, like, I got so, I haven't told everybody this. I got really sick during my vacation for three days and like, I was rejecting everything and the, my, even my joints were starting to hurt me. So I used the salve on my joints, like on my chest in particular, it was just, it was a horrible thing. I don't even want to tell <laughs> how bad my sickness was. Um, and I hadn't used it for anything like that. And I was like, thank God I brought my Sunset Lake CBD and that I was able to fly with it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty smart. I went on vacation also and forgot to bring mine with me, but <laughs> luckily there was some medicinal options in the, uh, the area we were at. But when we came home, we were greeted with a box of fresh CBD gummies from Sunset Lake and they changed their bottle. So Ooh. Um, we we're excited about that. And it seems like they're a bit juicier and sourer. Like the taste is even better than before. I hate to sound like that, but it was like, you know, these are like my favorite products in the house other than, uh, you know, the, uh, the stuff legal. that is now legal in Yeah, New you can York. say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, when I smoke that kind of stuff, I put the uh, the Keith from Sunset Lake on there. Yes. Um, and it really kind of chills me out when I when I smoke some of the anxiety-inducing uh, strains that are out there. My, yeah. my, my partner seems to like those, and I don't, so... I have to put a little bit on there. She doesn't mind when uh, it's when this, the the is on there, and it's really you know it's really calming for me. I love it. This might be too much information, but um, so I live in Astoria, and there's a lot of hookah bars in Astoria, and I was going a lot over the summer because I don't have a balcony and. Uh, I wanted to be outside like everybody else, you know, during COVID in New York. And then I was like, I'm spending so much money on hookah. What if I buy it? So I went and I bought a hookah. <laughs> I didn't realize how unhealthy they were. So now I know. Um, but I decided to put the keep in there instead. It was so good. It was so good. My cousin and I tried to were like, this is really amazing. We should do a video on this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the taste is actually really good, too. Like, if you like the taste of your strain that you're smoking, uh, it doesn't really interfere with it. It's like, it's nice and, and mellow. Well, awesome. All right. So guys, we love Sunset Lake CBD. We're not lying. Uh, Joshua Con Russell asked me recently because I was recommending it and he was like, wait, you actually use it? I was like, no, really, like we're obsessed with it. <laughs> I'm not using the gummies anymore. I love them, but I'm trying not to eat so much sugar. Um, they're really delicious though. So, and I also eat like five at a time and then I'm really mellow. Uh, but definitely you go check out their products. You can go to sunsetlakecbd.com. There's a promo code. It's NOMI, N-O-M-I, and you get 20% off your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. The promo code is NOMI, N-O-M-I, N-O-M-I. <laughs> for 20% off your order. You can check out all sorts of things. Uh, there's salves, there's tinctures, there's gummies, there's fudge, there's coffee that my mom loves. Oh my God. Um, and I've got my whole family hooked on it now. And so we're doing like family orders. Uh, well, they're doing family orders. I have my own orders uh, where they're all, you know, sharing products together. I don't know what's going on. It's like, I've, I've created a mom. It's great. It's a great thing. It chills my parents out a little bit. <laughs> so anyways, we'll be right back with our guests. Well, 
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So Devarian Baldwin is the author of Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. He's a leading urbanist, historian, and cultural critic. He is the Paul E. Rather Distinguished Professor of American Studies and founding director of Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College. Uh, I am so interested in this topic, living in New York, and just seeing how much of New York is owned by universities and driving us crazy with our rent. So <laughs> I think about it all the time, and I'm like, and here we are. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Tavarian. Thanks for so much having me. I appreciate it. I, you know, I want to stop, start off by just asking, why don't we talk about this more? I mean, the majority yeah. of Americans live in cities, and it is really shifting the way, um, I mean, everything from housing to policing, as you're going to talk about, uh, so much more. It's shifting the way, it's, it's like a secret a, a secret story that, you know, I don't know, I, I, why? Well, it's, it's, it's a story hiding in plain sight, as right. we like to say, because we still want to hold on to, to the belief that higher education is primarily a schoolhouse, uh, a space for teaching. And especially in the last 30 years, it's become so much more as we've moved our economy from a more industrial mass production to what we call a knowledge economy. And because of that, the research and the work that's done at the university has become the driving engine of today's um, capitalism. And, and we haven't shifted our minds to adjust to that reality. So that's interesting because, um, you know, right away, I, I, I before we get into the, the, new, the, the nitty gritty of what, how they're how these universities are shifting and, and recreating cities. Um, how much of the research that's coming out of universities is actually driven by capitalism? It's not just affecting capitalism, but you know, I'm just thinking of like all the environmental studies that were paid for by oil and gas industry. And you know, I'm sure there's a million other examples out there. That's a great question. Um, I don't have a percentage number, but I do know that starting in the 1980s with the passing of the Bayh-Dole Act, which basically said that um, for, for all the time before that, most of the research produced at universities was, it still is federally produced. It's, it's federally sponsored, excuse me. And before the 19, 1980, all that work had to, make, to be maintained in the public domain. It couldn't be sold. But a group of universities got together in 1979, 1980, and lobbied to make policy that would then say that even though we're getting this free sponsored research, once it's produced, we can package it privatize it and sell it on the market in exchange for royalties. And that ramped up what we call the technology transfer departments in universities all over the country, especially, you know, like MIT, Stanford, U Chicago, um, you know, schools like that. But all, almost every school now, every research school has a technology transfer division. And that's a huge driver of income for universities, especially as state budgets have shrunk and, and their contributions to universities, both public and private, because private schools get money too from the state, has shrunk. So they've tried to figure out different ways to maximize for-profit interest to bring money back to campuses to produce and to sustain themselves and to produce profit. Okay, so uh, let's start with public universities. Yeah. Um, how, how is a, you know, like a, a public university shaping, like let's, let's say CUNY in New York, uh, the City University for, of New York. Right. Um, how does a, a school like CUNY shape New York City? Is it, is it as much a player as like some of the other universities in, in New York? Yeah, some, some of the point about, I mean, CUNY is, is, a, is a perfect example and a, and a horrible example because 
its mandate from the beginning was to teach and educate the people. That was its original mandate. And it's been trying to do that, but because of the declining contributions from the state, it's had to also venture into these for-profit schemes. But it's much lower down on the totem pole as compared to an NYU, a Columbia, even a Fordham um, in New York. So like, you know, with Fordham's campus now and Lincoln's, Lincoln uh, Center, that's a, that's a part of this new kind of reorientation and reorganization of cities. So CUNY is, is trying to hold on. And right now there's been calls in the state house in, in New York state to bring back free tuition, not create it, bring it back as, as, as we all should know that it once had free tuition and open admissions. Uh, but it's, it has not been able to exempt itself from turning its research into profit to counter, to counter the declining contributions from the state. Okay. So let's compare, um, NYU, for instance, yeah. I think a lot of New Yorkers uh, are, are used to hearing the stories of these amazing apartments that uh, NYU professors have in like Washington Square Park, which just for right. those of you who don't know, is like, you know, unachievable, the, 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 the very expensive apartments. Right. And then these, I've been to some of them, I'm like, well, how do you live here? There's like a balcony, there's a terrace, there's like a view of, um, so, I mean, that's the stuff that we see, but, but how much does NYU play a role in just how, like the shape of New York right now? Like yeah. what's housing, police, et cetera? People call NYU um, a real estate company that just happens to teach classes. Um, and, you know, Greenwich Village, for people that I know, has, has gone through some changes. It used to be known as kind of a, a refuge for bohemians and hippies, uh, but now it's one of the most expensive zip codes in the country. And so the battle between NYU and Greenwich Village as NYU was tempted to expand and move outwards into that area and encroach, not just Washington Square Park, Washington Square Village, Greenwich Village, also Midtown, also Brooklyn downtown with this new tech campus, also NYU Abu Dhabi and Shanghai. It's become, it's, 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 <laughs> it's franchised itself like a McDonald's. Um, and so in these basically land deals, which they never call them that, they call them, you know, they, they say, because we're, we're, we're crunched for space. They tell these woeful stories about, you know, dance, dance practices, dance recitals in hallways and, and professors teaching, you know, having office hours and in rooms the size of closets. And, and I, rem I went to NYU for graduate school. So I remember space crunches and having whole office hours at coffee shops, but it never compared to the scale of their response to those conditions for what they're what they're doing, and so, you know, when 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 the uh, when NYU where the area was a Bohemian encampment, there were these land battles between you know the great Robert Moses and and Jane Jacobs, and she was able to hold off some of the development that was going to happen when he wanted to run a highway right through the village, um, right after the BQE development. So that was a, that's the old story. So we people, we hold on to those stories, but it's a very different place. But the one thing that locals want to hold on to or, or, or maintain is that some of the arrangements, some of the, um, some of the kinds of agreements that were held that you're not going to build so high in NYU. You're not going to be able to build over here. You're not going to be able to put educational buildings or commercial development here. Those have recently been broken with NYU's 2031 plan. That's his bicentennial. There's a huge um, uh, plan to expand as much square footage as the height of the uh, Empire State Building all throughout the village. You're already starting to see dormitories that are totally out of scale with the kind of low level design that people want to maintain with the village. So people are upset. 
not so much with how many blocks you're taking over, but with the scale of what NYU is able to do. And in the name of simply, um, the, as, as John Stuxton, the former president say, as goes NYU goes New York City. So the, also the arrangements that these presidents have with mayors and administrators and financiers that their board of trustees is packed with some of the titans of, of construction companies and finance and capital. And so when they develop these develop, when they go into these development deals, these are basically arrangements to put money into the pockets of the people that are on these boards. Uh, conflict of interest much? Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. So let's play devil's advocate here for sure. a second. All yeah. right, great. I'm a New Yorker. I understand uh, real estate is, is king. It drives everything, uh, real estate and police. Literally, I mean, it's the two. It's 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 the third rail of Democratic Party politics. Right. You know, you don't touch people's real estate donors, and you don't touch uh, you don't touch the police unions because yeah. it's just it's just progressive city as we are. Even the most progressive lawmakers don't want to do, deal with it. Um, with that being said, at least it's education. It's not building uh, you know these 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 empty glass towers that are being filled with uh, billionaire. And you know, investment money where they want to plant their their who knows what money uh, to keep it outside of a bank and at least have it in real estate, driving up the cost of living for everybody else in New York who's trying to survive. So it's, ah, it's not that. I know, but the problem is it is that, and I'm it sure is. you okay. know this. But <laughs> that's me. a great setup. But let's be clear, as you said, devil's advocate. I want to be clear up front. College and universities they bring ideas of people together, and they generate new innovations can't take that away from them, right? But because as research and development in universities has become this pipeline for private industry and finance and computer science and pharmaceuticals and even military defense weaponry, that work is being done in university laboratories. And so the, 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 the real rub is that because universities, both public and private, are considered nonprofits based on the tax code of the 501c3, their property is tax exempt. So because these laboratories and what have become these knowledge communities, these mixture of labs and of high income, high scale housing in glass and steel buildings, as you pointed out, um, this is the new university. And these, these, these innovation districts and these knowledge communities, because they are slated for educational purposes, even though the research there is going to produce royalties that are for profit, they remain tax exempt. And on top of that, they remain tax exempt while their presence raises the property values for land all around them. Most urban universities are in working class or poor communities of color or white poor communities. So as these university developments raise up property values, the fixed incomes of these individuals in these neighborhoods, their housing costs go up. Rental, the cost of rental properties go up. And then, on and then to add another insult to injury, universities, don't pay into property taxes, but property taxes are what pay for secondary schools, are what pay for trash removal, snow removal. Um, think about Texas, the electrical grid. So property taxes pay for that. So residents are now realizing that there's a direct through line from the property taxes that universities don't pay and the crumbling infrastructure that's not being taken care of in their neighborhoods. And they're saying, universities pay your fair share. So both universities and private industries are recognizing the power of institutions of higher education as tax shelters. Talk about a public school, Arizona State University actually houses the biggest private development in the state of Arizona, a state farm insurance regional headquarters, 
And that development is tax exempt because it's on university land. And so what happens is that the university said, oh, state, you're not gonna give us any money or less money? Okay, our, our land is tax exempt. We're gonna lease out our land to the highest bidder, State Farm. They're gonna be tax exempt. Then we're gonna charge them a lower rate, take that money and do whatever we want to with it without democratic or state oversight. So one of the most significant things they did was they lured Herm Edwards, the former uh, coach of the New York Jets, to come out to Tempe, Arizona, and coach their college football team, and they built a new stadium. That's what they did in the name of the public good, right? And the, and the, and the state can't do anything about it because it's under the cover of this tax exemption. So, so just to be clear for everybody, when we say tax exempt, we mean federal... We mean their property taxes. Oh, we lost your, you lost oh, your sorry. Second. Go ahead. Are we back? Yep, we're good. Okay, sorry about that. So we're talking about their municipal property taxes. Got this it. is money okay. that goes directly to the city, right? Now, that, now let's be clear. There are other ways in which university money is tax exempt. Uh, endowment. So Harvard has a $40 billion endowment tax exempt, right? Contribution. So when a when a private company like Google or, um, or State Farm or Bombardier or General Motors wants to conduct research at a university, that money is tax exempt. The money that would normally have to charge for research and development in the private sector, they get equally as talented graduate students to do that work, give them money for their stipends. And so they basically have tax exempt free research and development that's gonna do the same work that will be done in the private sector. So there are these ranges of ways in which universities have found ways to sell themselves out to the highest bidder because of this tax exemption, this, this tax, the various ways in which they become tax shelters. And the city part is important because this is all being done on property tax exempt land, these for-profit deals. And that's why it's vitally important for cities where these universities sit. We're paying the cost. The, that, the, the value is being extracted from the public right. uh, uh, dollars that should go to these cities. So. What about these like for-profit schools? You mentioned ASU, and I immediately thought of all the for-profit schools that were Phoenix University. Uh, exactly. Um, you know, some of them are online. Some of them have real estate holdings. I don't know if they do in line, you know, classes in person. I know that Obama cracked down on them a few years ago. But do they have a stake in any of this? I mean, I've driven through Phoenix many times, and I can't tell you how many buildings I see with ASU on them. And uh, I've been in other countries where ASU has shown up on in buildings, but ASU is is a is a public university. Um, but there's other ones like Phoenix University, whatever these online schools mm -hmm, are. Mm -hmm. And some of them are religious. And, uh, yeah. Right. A couple of years ago, there was a crackdown on their financial arrangements precisely because of the ways in which they were using these, these benefits and these tax, these tax um, uh, uh, designations as a way to shield or profit or mine uh, contracts and relationships with, with, with governments, um, with, with state power. So it's not as egregious as it once was. Um, I don't focus on that those for-profit universities in my work because I just found that the the reality of non the, the non-profit universities and their in, in, um, in, in kind of incursions was egregious enough uh, um, and without any scrutiny um, on the part of the communities where they where they occupy 
or the government entities that help facilitate these arrangements. And so that for me was enough on its own, but there definitely could be, and there has been some work in the scholarship on the for-profit universe. It actually was, I think there was a great study being be, uh, done by a woman who worked for one of them. And she wrote a book about being on the in, coming from the inside. So there is some of that work. I just, that's not my area of focus, but it's very much a part, there's, there's a range, it's, this is a part of a range. And, and I guess the bigger story here is to what degree do these entities that we think of as just teaching classes all play a role in facilitating um, the new economy? That's, right. the, that's the great takeaway. That's that's exactly this is it's a new economy that's very confusing to folks. It's 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 very like like you're saying like hidden in tax laws and um, you know so the policing side. Yeah, okay. uh, you know, we start off the show talking about needing to what is it going to take for Democratic lawmakers to step up and 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 hold police accountable? You know, systemically, not just you know rename streets and and have uh, police chiefs and officers fired. But what is it going to take for the institution to shift the way LBJ finally signed civil rights? Like, what is it going to take? Mm-hmm. And then I hear about this, and I'm like, oh my god, this right. runs so deep. Mm-hmm in these cities that Democratic lawmakers <laughs> control. That's so right. can you explain uh, what's happening? Yeah, so there's a, there's a very, right before our eyes, um, there's a very real way, this is to be very clear, colleges and universities are the biggest landholders, employers, healthcare providers, and policing agents in cities and college towns all across the country. We're not talking about just Columbus, Ohio, or Madison, Wisconsin, or Gainesville, Florida, but New York, Chicago, LA, Atlanta, St. Louis, right? Major cities. So university police forces, both public and private, are an occupying force. And their primary goal, they they, they hide under the specter of public safety, offering a public good, especially in very violence-torn neighborhoods like on the south side of Chicago or in Baltimore or West Philadelphia. The argument is that, well, Johns Hopkins is there, UPenn is there. Their police force expanding out into neighborhoods is doing a public good, it's public safety. But their goal, they, but they don't do that well. Their, their real goal is to secure neighborhood blocks to make, let's be honest, primarily white families feel secure about their children going to school in these predominantly black and brown neighborhoods and to signal safety by having police on every corner. And they're there to demonstrate the safety of the brand of the entity of the university. And they're there to protect as these knowledge communities, as these research and development entities expand out into cities, they're there to provide protection and make a place and remake city blocks for university expansion. They police not just the land, they police behavior, they police interactions. And and the most important thing about them, especially the private universities, is they're not even, they have have public authority. So they're armed, most of them are armed. They have public authority or public jurisdiction and they are not subjected to Freedom of Information Act laws. Whoa. Okay, so so let's break this down for a second. Yeah, sure. They're they're armed. Yes, most Who's of them. Ninety percent of them are armed. Ninety percent. Who's paying for their arms? Well, in the, well, if it's a private school, it's it's it's, it's murky, but primarily the the, the university and, the and university. their endowment. Okay. Um, but okay. if it's a public university, it's it's state, it's you know, public money. Um, who's training them? Are these officers that are off duty regular officers? It's, like, what, what are the standards here? It's all good. In some places, it's um, it's state, it's state, and they have to get state training, right? But in other times, they're going to get contracting. They're 
they're off-duty police officers, as you pointed out. In some places, there's so there's a range of policing mechanisms. There's public safety that are unarmed. There are fully state-licensed private, separate private security force like U University of Chicago Police Department, University of Cincinnati Police, uh, Police Department, University of California. The whole California system has their own separate police force. So it's it, it's a range of arrangements, which is what sometimes it makes it difficult to track and market. But the point here is that in most cases, even public universities, when it comes to who they answer to, the suggestion is they're engaging in public safety, but they primarily answer to the administration and the board of trustees and the donors. <laughs> so I'm sure there have been instances, oh. just like with the regular police, where uh, things have gone terribly wrong. Yes, so we can, we can raise the name of Samuel DuBose in Cincinnati in 2015. We can raise the name of Stephanie Washington in New Haven in 2019. We could raise the name of Paul Washington in Portland in 2018. These are people that were either shot or killed by campus police off campus. So not on campus, off campus. So miles away from campus over things. So Sam DeBose in 2015, so thinking about right now, Dante White, he was so over air freshener. Sammy DeBose was killed over a, um, uh, uh, a license plate. Right. Over a license plate. Right. Something so, that they don't even have jurisdiction. They're not traffic ops. These but are they do have jurisdiction because they're sanctioned by the state. They, they have the same power as the Cincinnati police or whatever. These, they're, they're, they're trained and certified by state entities. They have the jurisdiction, the same, in most cases, the same as the city cops themselves. So, but, but oh, jurisdiction, okay, but... Um, and arrest they're powers. Not, they're, they're not traffic cops, though. Right, that's right. They're not. So why, why does a license plate even matter? Because their primary job is to signal safety and surveillance in these mixed racial and class neighborhoods. So it's kind of like what we used to call broken windows policing. Yeah. If you police the small things, the argument is that you will be able to make a signal and people that are doing real crimes will prevent them. They're still operating under that, that modus operandi of, of, of broken windows policing. That's, it's ramping up again that if we over-police on these small things, it will in, it will deter big policing. And so but what you're seeing all over, whether it's an air freshener or license plate, is that black and brown folks are being killed in these stops. And so, it's not exempted from cop, city cops, it's right. campus cops as well. Okay, so like, I'm so glad you brought broken, broken windows. Um, that policy supposedly ended in New York City under Mayor de Blasio, this is a Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg log, like the stop and frisk broken, broken windows. Um, with that being said, okay, so that policy with the police force in New York has ended. Has it also ended for the campus police? Like, do they have a different set of standards that they have to follow? Broken windows policing might have ended in policy and official right. policy, but it still exerts itself in, uh, in practice. Because even with the formal ending of broken windows policing, discretion about what is compliance, what is resisting arrest, um, what is furtive movement, all these decisions are still given to the individual police officer, the discretion of the police officer. So on campuses and beyond campuses, broken taillights, loud music, uh, uh, expired plates, um, aggressive movement, all become the general mechanism for policing. And this is why you are still seeing these deaths, even with policy reforms, when the power is placed into the hands of individual police officers who are who have microaggressions, who have implicit bias, who who, who can engage, um, who who are protected by immunity, various kinds of immunity. 
there won't be reforms or changes. I mean, one of the ironies is that right now in, in the streets, people have been calling for um, defunding the police, which means shifting funds away from armed police stops to things like trauma care, to domestic violence therapy, to unarmed police stops. And when I talked to Senator Washington, Mary Washington in Baltimore, she was like, um, the university could be the perfect place to model this kind of real um, public safety as compared to aggressive policing. You have these major medical and health and public health centers. Why couldn't you pair an unarmed police officer with a public health safety worker? Where else but a university could this work being done? But they're actually doing the opposite. They're bringing in more cops. So uh, not, uh, not de Blasio, but Bloomberg before him, when he was enforcing and ramping up stop and frisk, um, he was also going to his alma mater, Johns Hopkins, to support and give billions of dollars to the uh, Baltimore PD and Johns Hopkins to support their creation of an armed private police force. And Mary Helen Washington said, this is akin to putting a Vatican city in the middle of Baltimore. Right, that is very, Because they would very, hold yeah. no jurisdiction, they, 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 would be in no, they would have no accountability to local government, state government, only to the board of trustees and to the administration. It's and like so an autonomous is, zone many for them. Republics, right? Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, it's like an autonomous zone, but you, you said yeah. it even better. It's their yeah. own tax-exempt little, I mean, forget about the camp. Speaking of uh, Michael Bloomberg, he, he's very well aware of Caribbean islands where he doesn't have to pay taxes. Um, <laughs> he used to go there every weekend when he was there. Just everybody knows. He would take his little private jet. Oh, no. yeah. As bad as de Blasio is, just remember how bad <laughs> Bloomberg That's was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Anyways, uh, so, okay, so, so this is, is, is there any sort of, is, is anybody speaking up? You mentioned oh, this yeah. lawmaker, Washington in, in Baltimore, but yeah. you know, what's what's happening? Um, are people speaking up? Are, is there any legislation? Mm -hmm. So after this, people were already talking, were using the words like reparations at, at the University of Chicago because of a long history that the university, other universities, you know, there's been this huge racial reckoning around, you know, a white supremacy. So whether it be universities ties to slavery or the um, seizure of indigenous lands, but I recently wrote a piece in Washington Post about the fact that, you know, the, the reckoning goes far beyond slavery, that we can talk about um, universities upholding restricted, racially restrictive covenants when it came to segregate, segregated housing in the 20s. They were the friendly face of urban renewal in the 50s and 60s, de demolishing whole black and brown uh, communities to make way for their laboratories to keep the so-called urban crisis at bay. We can so so th there there's a long history of, of social movement organizing. You should uh, Columbia tried to build a, a gym in the middle of Morningside Park, and activists and residents caught charged Jim Crow, G Y M Crow, so very inventive, and they actually stopped that from happening. So current um, in, of activism after the summer of 2020 with George Floyd. People say, well, policing in general, but what about campus policing? And furthermore, how does campus policing open a door into the larger idea that these universities are not just these ivory towers floating above our cities? They're driving the economy and the governance and the policing of our entire cities. That when there's a, a labor dispute on a campus, it's not just a campus problem, it's a city problem because they're employing most of the city, particularly low, low wage labor. And so people are beginning to see the connections um, between what is happening on a campus and its kind of reverberations for the city at large. And so you have a major um, May 3rd day of action 
spearheaded by cops off campus, which was started in California, but has become nationwide. Say so we need cops off campus. People, uh, uh, university workers are going to not uh, work that day. And there's going to be a whole month of May where there's going to be teachings and instruction about that. Um, at University of Pennsylvania, people are charging pin for pilots. So our city schools are crumbling. And there's a direct correlation between that and, this, and the taxes that UPenn doesn't pay. So Penn is not kicking in some dollars, but they're calling it a gift, which I'm sure they were counseled for by their lawyers to call it a gift and not a contribution or responsibility. Uh, in New Haven, uh, protesters, there was a 600-car uh, uh, stoppage where they stopped traffic in downtown New Haven last July saying, Yale, pay your fair share. Um, right now in Massachusetts, um, there uh, is legislation going through the state house that's saying we have this voluntary program with universities in Boston where they have to pay a percentage of what they would normally pay if their properties were properly assessed. We want to make, but none of you are actually paying even the, the, the small percentage we're asking you to pay. So now there's, there's some legislation going through the state house saying, let's make that mandatory. So there are things that are going on right now, even in terms of if you were just watching March Madness um, with basketball, there was a campaign with uh, athletes having a hashtag um, not NCAA property. An unspoken part of the story is that, you know, in the month of, of March, um, universities under the guise of amateurism make $900 million in one month. And none of that money goes to the athletes, which are primarily black and brown. None of that money goes to the neighborhoods where the stadiums sit. And none of that money goes to the communities that produce these athletes. So part is also saying that this, the, the labor issue, the healthcare issue, the uh, policing elements, the land grab elements, also the athletic revenue elements, all must be understood as a part of a new understanding, a new vision of how today's economy works with the university at the center and black and brown and poor white communities as the primarily the target for the extraction of the wealth for this thing, the whole thing to run. And we need to understand that now because it's, it's washing, as you live in New York, it's washing over cities and we're still blinded by this idea that, well, they just teach classes or they, they produce pure research and they are the driving force of our economies and we don't see it. To Varian Baldwin, I am, this is so fascinating. I have 9,000 more questions for you, but we don't have enough time. Um, you can check out Devarian's book. It is, uh, it, it's such an interesting conversation. Um, it's called The Shadow of the Ivory Tower, excuse me, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Remember, most Americans live in cities. And even if it's not in cities, they're smaller cities. And, you know, it's it's not just New York, New Haven. It's not just Ivory Tower. It's ASU. It's yeah. U of A. It's, it's uh, Kentucky. It's right. Oklahoma. Everywhere. Um, really, it's about the new economy. Fascinating conversation to vary in. I uh, would love to have you back on to continue yeah. this conversation. And, and thank you for doing this extraordinarily detailed and thoughtful work. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And let's do it again. I'm happy Absolutely. to do Yeah. <laughs> All right. We will be right back with Jordan Zacharin and Alex Koch to talk about today's news uh, and Alex's latest story on Alec. Yes. Remember that? <laughs> be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm so excited. It's been a while. 
uh, I'm a little rusty with the panels. <laughs> Jordan Zacharin with a fresh haircut, I think, and a different location. Look at that. Jordan Zacharin runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. And Alex Koch, old friend Alex Koch. He's an investigative reporter with Exposed by the Center for Media and Democracy. And uh, he's part. Of, he's the co-founder of a nonprofit news app called Opt Out. Also the co-host of the Gilded Age podcast and this is the thing i didn't know about a member of the freelance solidarity project i love that um so i want to start off guys talking about alex's story i think this is something jordan's very tapped into as well it's a great story for today uh alex you have reported uh recently on alec remember alec does everybody remember what that is maybe maybe uh for the kids who didn't know alec when it first launched we can do a little refresher alex what's uh what's alec and why, what are they doing right now to suppress voting in, uh, in, in other states? Battlegrounds. Well, first of all, um, thanks a lot for having me on. I'm a big fan of yours, big fan of the show, and also a big fan of Jordan. So, um, yeah, really pleased to be on here. Um, Alec is not me. Um, Alec <laughs> is the uh, American Legislative Exchange Council. So I like to call it a corporate bill mill. Uh, it's essentially a national organization um, that unites state lawmakers from around the country, almost all of them are Republican, uh, with business lobbyists. And so they, they write model legislation um, kind of behind closed doors at these conferences that they hold in places like that, um, that then the lawmakers can bring back to their home states and introduce in the legislatures. So um, a lot of what they do is, you know, pro-business, kind of anti-regulation, um, kind of typical kind of conservative pro-business um, interest-based um uh, laws, but more lately, they've been getting back into voter suppression, uh, coordinating kind of some voter suppression efforts, which they tried to stay away from for a few years. But they're they're back at it. Back at it because uh, you know, as Tucker Carlson likes to remind everybody every night, uh, the demographics are shifting, and that's the that's the the goal for the Democrats. What's going on? Kamala Harris is going to Guatemala to go like round up a bunch of immigrants to go vote for her in battleground states. Is that their strategy here? Is is that what they're thinking? I mean, there. Look, the whole right wing today, whether it's the politicians on the state and federal level, the media sphere, it, it is all based in propaganda at this point. We've gone full. I'm sure you talk about it all the time on this show, um, but it, we've gone full propaganda mode in, in every element. I think of our society. So certainly, uh, voting and voter fraud specifically is uh, a, ma a major propaganda point for the right. So whether they're making outrageous claims that million the Democrats want millions and millions of of non citizens to vote. Um, or they are fear-mongering about uh, non-existent voter fraud that is statistically uh, completely unimportant. Um, uh, they are basically using this propaganda campaign to scare voters and to justify kind of Trumpian, uh, to use kind of trust, Trumpian justifications for these extreme voter suppression bills, which we're seeing uh, over 360 bills have been introduced in the states this session alone, this year. Whoa, whoa. Okay, Jordan, you're, you're monitoring this stuff too, I know. Um, I mean, how likely let's, let's let's just remind folks many if not most of our legislatures in this country are controlled by republicans and even in states like new york just you know two mm -hmm. years ago the republicans controlled one uh, the senate because a bunch of democrats were willing to sell their souls to go like get a better bigger office and i don't know free drinks with somebody <laughs> it was it was a real low cost let's just say that uh, for democracy but they've really fundamentally uh these these alec uh the Koch brothers uh, you know, different interests have have really put so much energy into taking over these legislatures, while the Democrats simultaneously have just been like, "See a local politics." <laughs> so I, I ask you, like, are these bills? That's a lot of bills, and 
is there a chance that any, if not a good chunk of them get passed? Yeah, I mean, you look at what happened with corporate. I thought corporations were against voter suppression, right? That's what, that's what we were told. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, it's the funny thing is if they were not funding these these wild right wing lunatics, they would not be uh, having put out these statements and feel uh, upset at all the tweets they're getting. Uh, you know, a lot of these things do have a shot of passing. You know, we saw what happened in Georgia; those things that passed. Florida has been trying to do the same. They want to do this crazy um, signature matching program that is just the you know incredibly difficult for people. I mean, my signature is the same. So basically what they want to do is if you send an absentee ballot and Florida has a lot of vote by mail uh, and anyone can do it there, you have to have the exact same signature on every single thing. And they would signature match and they will throw out ballots and they can select where they decide to throw out. Uh, they decide to uh, audit ballots and see where they're going to throw them out from um, as that so often happens. And, you know, they threw out the, as a concession, they threw out the Georgia, the, the law model in Georgia where you couldn't give food or water to people in line. Uh, that one was a big headliner, almost like uh, a side note, but it was sound, sounded so egregious that uh, they threw that one out. I'm going to push that through. Arizona is, you know, they are their redistricting commission. They're supposed to be independent. Now it's independent, a, yeah. yeah. Well, not so much Supposedly. anymore. Uh, they have a, you know, a Republican or someone who has given a lot of money to conservatives uh, now overseeing it, and a Republican staffer is going to be the, the guide to it. So this is happening everywhere, and and that's why I kind of go crazy every single day that we're not seeing the uh, S1 or some version of it passed, you know, the For the People Act, because we are one House Democratic death. We are one sickness from a senator away from not being able to do it at all. You know, they act like these things can just, you know, pass maybe down the line when they can get uh, Joe Manchin to say yes. But we are, you know, probably a few months away from every single day that they don't do it is a day where these laws put in by Republicans who are funded by Alec, who are funded by the Koch brothers, who very much like Republicans, big business is not attacking Republicans, that they are getting closer and closer to clinching these, uh, to getting closer and closer to clinching these voter suppression methods and putting them in place for a decade or more. So this is, um, this has been a long time in the making and it's, it's such a big topic. And I, and I think what you just said, Jordan, like we were you're reminding everybody how close it is. I mean, yes, Biden won the presidency by the largest number ever in history, but Donald Trump came just below that with the second largest number in history. And, and, and once again, uh, in, in, in the fashion of Obama era politics, we got annihilated locally. It, it, it's sometimes I think our conversations on the left, like we get into these little boxes where we're having conversations about really innovative, progressive things and like what we should be pushing forward. And we're completely forgetting like the current map and how we're never gonna have any of these things on the table. Or if we do, it's gonna be in 25 years uh, when it's financially something that 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 is an advantage for, um, you know, the next Boehner uh, to invest in, which we'll get to in a second. So. I mean, what is it going to take? Like, you're both really thoughtful people. I mean, how do we have to frame these conversations on the left? Like, how, how do we amp like how do we organize around this? Instead of, I mean, I love the idea of challenging bad Democrats, but uh, there's a lot of weak Republicans that we could be going after right now and channeling our energy into in a way that the DCCC just like clearly isn't very good at. I mean, what is it going to take? I mean, anyway. first of all, saving redistricting, right? Uh, if yeah. we get to the point where Republicans fill, uh, gerrymander even more, there's going to be so few swing districts. They are going to take over power without even winning an election. They are going to just get rid of Democratic, uh, you know, 
Let's say in Tennessee, the Justice Democrats, they launched a primary challenger to Jim Cooper. His district may not even exist if gerrymandering yes. continues. I've noticed this. They just launched another one to somebody who they, they think same exact thing. I'm so, yeah. so glad that you brought that up, like and strategically. So, yeah. And so these things matter. Of course, we want good Democrats, but we need to, you see, Alec is investing in state and local lawmakers. That's the whole thing. Alex is pointing out people who are getting money and they're in the state legislature. They are in the state Senate. They are local officials getting money from Alec, getting bills from Alec. And the left has been trying to do that. Unfortunately, everyone who watches MSNBC and that whole crew and the you know, National Democratic Party doesn't seem too interested in uh, helping to build that infrastructure. There are people that want to do it. I talk with them every single day. There are people that are great people who are doing it, great people who are you know, busting their butts to do it. But unless the National Party and unless you know, the people who are online who are hashtag blue no matter who want to invest in that, well, there is no equivalent as uh, the businesses that will do that on the right the way Alec does. So it has to be people doing it and it has to be the party wanting to do it. And I mean, we saw, you know, state parties have their own vested interests. So until that happens, uh, these are things are just gonna keep happening, happening, happening. And Alex, I mean, simultaneously, this has all sort of come about as unions have been under extraordinary attack um, as the Democratic Party over the last 40 years, as I know you know very well, has completely, you know, pretty much disassociated itself in, in, in like, used to be intertwined with unions and and it's not anymore it's like unions can throw some checks and you know maybe we'll support the the democratic party's candidates but isn't does that have something to do with it i mean we're like you've got business and the Koch brothers and alec and 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 meanwhile there's no interest in going local which how do you do this otherwise how do you find yeah, it i mean that's a very good point about labor um i mean first of all alec is extremely anti-labor for obvious reasons um, you know, the Coke Industries is a member of Alec, for example, and they're, they're run by Charles Koch, who's one of the biggest opponents to organized labor the country's ever seen. Um, but, you know, and, and I want to clarify my article, um, we don't have proof that Alec wrote these bills, but we just don't know yet. And um, there's a lot of correlation, I'll put it that way. A hundred Alec lawmakers have proposed these bills around the country. So uh, there, and there, a lot of the bills are very similar. So there's a lot of correlation. We're just waiting for to find some evidence. But, I'm, you know, it, it does seem uh, like there's a lot of overlap. Alec has a secret working group they formed in the last couple of years. Um, full of a bunch of Trumpists um, and people from the Heritage Foundation and stuff for kind of like strategizing for ways to suppress the vote and to uh, gerrymander to help Republicans. So, um, and what Jordan was saying about, um, you know, uh, just redistricting and gerrymandering, I mean, the, it's the state level uh, lawmakers who do the, who write the districts for the state and for the, the federal uh, and for Congress um, for the U.S. House. And so, um, you know, getting, um, it's just as important to elect, you know, elect people who are democracy-minded at the state level uh, as it is at the federal level. Um, and I'm not sure why Joe Biden at this point hasn't put the hammer down on Joe Manchin and said, "Look," or told Schumer, "Listen, you could, you need to threaten Joe Manchin with being a member of the caucus, or at least with his uh, his position as the head of the Senate Energy Committee." Uh, what's he going to do? Go go to the Republican side and caucus with the Trumpists? I, I don't think he will. He's a Democrat. Um, but going back to labor, you know, labor basically a lot of a lot of things happen when organized labor is strong in this country. Uh, one is higher wages, much higher wages, much much bigger middle class, and much more prosperity. Uh, another thing is is you know uh, progressive policy has a better shot if organized labor uh, is stronger and thus engaging in politics at a, at a greater degree. Um, so I think that uh, and I know you've done uh, segments on this before uh, about the power of organized labor and how 
progressives need to bring them back into the fold uh, after kind of being ostracized by a bunch of the neoliberal Democrats. So yeah, I think that um, it, any any kind of increase in organized labor is good, not just for everyone's everyone's personal finances and and, and sort of well being, but also for progressive actual democratic policy to, to have a chance. I mean, there, I'm sure this is on, on plenty um, applications, uh, questionnaires that labor provides to candidates, like, do you support ALEC? I know, actually, I know that for a fact. And there are unions who prioritize fighting ALEC. Uh, we just don't hear about it enough. We don't hear candidates going out there and saying, whether they're in Congress or not, or local, you know, we need to fight ALEC. Um, so maybe we start to say that more often, maybe hosts like ourselves, and we have candidates on say, you know, do you, would you fight ALEC? I mean, how, how would you do it? What are, what are your plans? Um, because it has sort of operated in the shadows and we don't, you know, not enough people report on it like yourself. Yeah. And I do, I do just want to want to note that, yeah, I mean, where I work, the center for media and democracy, um, is, is one of the only outlets that really focuses heavily on Alec, uh, at least on a national level. Um, and, and it, it's not a very sexy topic. It's not going to make a bunch of CNN headlines or political headlines, but it's incredibly important to know what they're doing, what the business leaders from these companies that are members of ALEC are doing and what they're pushing out to the states. Uh, and so a lot of it has to be some kind of sleuthing that we do to figure out what's going on and then we report on it. And so I'm really glad that you're bringing, bringing it to the attention of your viewers. Um, and you can read the article exposed by cmd.org. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think one component of this is, 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 is the media, is, is covering more stuff. Um, covering stuff like ALEC that, you know, Don Wiener and I wrote this piece the other day, um, that is 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 not often reported on that people do need to know, especially organizers and, and other other politicians who are not affiliated with it. They should be fully aware of kind of the power that it has and what they do. Absolutely. And it ties into Democratic Party politics. It ties into how many seats we have. It ties into everything. So, you know, this these are the structural issues that, like you said, are not sexy, but, you know, the IDC wasn't sexy. The DNC reform wasn't sexy. Right. A lot of this stuff wasn't sexy until enough people realized what was going on. I want to shift gears a little bit because <laughs> uh, somebody who I'm sure has a good relation or had a good relationship with Alec, uh, John Boehner, in some way or form, or the people who funded Alec or behind Alec, uh, John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, loves a good cigar, loves a good drink. Uh, he he is now one of the, the the leading advocates for legalizing marijuana. Let's play that clip. You um, decided to throw some your weight behind uh, the legalizing of cannabis industry. Do you think that the federal government needs to pass a law that would basically take that off of the drug list so that it could be more in line with what's happening in the states? Yeah, we've got now some 37, 38 states who've uh, legalized cannabis in some form. Uh, the federal government says it's illegal. Uh, it's time for the federal government uh, to look at these 37, 38 states, a vast majority of them, who've legalized this, uh, and take some action to basically get out of the way. I'm still a just say no kid. Um, so I've watched this uh, debate and uh, your embrace of it with a little bit of skepticism. How am I wrong? Well, I, I won't say I embrace it. Uh, but you know, when you're in politics, as long as I do, you learn to listen to your constituents. And over the years, uh, I was in Congress and I saw state after state after state uh, begin to legalize cannabis. Uh, I began to, to take notice because obviously the people were speaking. And by the time I left office, I thought to myself, you know, listen, uh, I'd rather have a glass of wine and smoke a cigarette, uh, but if somebody wants to smoke a joint, what do I really care? But once I got to looking at some of the research about the, the benefits of cannabis for kids with seizures, uh, for soldiers that have chronic pain or PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, I began to believe there's there's a place uh, for this product uh, in American society. 
And I don't uh, go out and promote it, uh, but I do uh, stand, I serve on the board of a cannabis company. Uh, I believe in what the industry is doing. And um, the American people want to smug a joint, let them do. Hey, well, you know, you mentioned why. All right, uh, I think we, we just lost Jordan and we're gonna wait for him to come back, but uh, are, we, are, we, are we good? Okay, uh, I'll start with you, Alex. I mean, this is, this is uh, hi, it's almost like he was in office for like most of his life. Um, could he have done something like before he was on the board of, I mean, this is just like so transactional. He says it on TV, he's like, yeah, I'm making some money doing this. And you know, F you black and brown communities who we've uh, locked up for the last, you know, several decades uh, for, for, for barely any weed, but here we go. Now I'm uh, ready to make some money off. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, isn't he working for the weed industry? So you have to take what he says with, with a major grain of salt. Um, but you look at least, I mean, yeah, it, he's not actually in Congress. He can't actually vote on anything or write a bill at this point. Um, but at least, at least now he is, you know, despite his major financial conflict of interest, he is on the, on the right side of the, uh, the issue, at least for now. Um, but I will say, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to find someone more opposed to marijuana than Joe Biden. Um, I mean, they fired people for past marijuana use. Um, honestly, according to their... I know one of you know them. One of them. Before oh, wow. it happened, happened, they reached out. They said, "I just didn't get a job with the Biden administration because I admitted to smoking weed." And I was like, "What? Hang on." And then, of course, the story came out, and so many other people had the same. This is insane. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just it's no. It's and I'm curious. I mean, did did um did, was this uh, kind of a um was this unexpected for these people? And, and and was it was it like many years earlier? Was it any time of your life that you'd used it? I mean, that's I don't of... I don't know all the details, but I do know that the person was young. And they were asked, have you ever smoked marijuana? And given the world that we're in right now, I think it was like, sure, I've smoked marijuana. It's not like that would have been magnified or unveiled in any way. It's not like, okay, if Joe Biden hires someone who smoked weed before in his life or admits to smoking weed, suddenly it means that he is as the federal government, uh, you know, proposing legalizing marijuana. It's not like Joe Biden suddenly like, I'm for legalizing marijuana, which essentially means the federal government is for, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't understand what the justification was on it, but go ahead. Yeah, it just seems uh, kind of ridiculous. I mean, the time that we're living in, it's a much um, less harmful substance than alcohol um, and a bunch of prescription drugs, obviously. Uh, it seems absurd. Um, but it, it is nice that the states are are legalizing, and even our state of New York yeah. um, finally did it. And and there's only there's one reason why Cuomo relented after blocking it for many years. What Probably was that, because Alex? the yeah, right. I, I, I can't. <laughs> has he been in the news lately? I'm trying to remember. Um, I mean, there's actually two different scandals, of course, the the nursing home scandal, and then uh, because of all the brave women who came out and, and spoke about how Cuomo sexually harassed and abused them. Um, so he had his back up against the wall. He, he had to do something popular. So I guess he, he encouraged us and kind of claimed almost some ownership of it, which was, was absurd. But I mean, that's kind of how he operates. Yeah, he's um, been doing that since for the IDC. He's been doing that forever. You know, when uh, Cynthia Nixon proposed something, he would just mimic it. And I mean, that's just Cuomo's modus operandi. Um, so, okay, we're waiting for Jordan, just so everybody knows. Jordan had a little bit of a Wi-Fi issue, some construction's happening in his building, we were just told, so he's trying to get back on. So, uh, in the meantime, I, 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 I was gone for uh, on vacation for a little over a week, and I didn't have the, the pleasure of reporting on Matt Gates. So, will you just spare me a little bit so we can have, <laughs> have a little bit of a conversation about uh, Matt Gates? So, House Minority Leader, 
uh, Scalise, Steve Scalise, has weighed in on the allegations of against Matt Gates. Hey, Jordan, Jordan's back. Uh, so you're on mute. Verizon so, heard me talking about Alec and they got mad and coming out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and with that. <laughs> um, all right, so we're talking about Matt Gates because I didn't have the opportunity to really discuss Matt Gates because I was on break and just give it, give it to me, please. Yeah, uh, Steve's <laughs> House Minority Leader, Steve Scalise has, has now weighed in on the Matt Gates, Gates gate. Is that what we're calling it? Is that the updated? Gate, yeah? Let's show that. Sounds, sounds about right. <laughs> well, you know, we've heard a lot of stories. I mean, obviously I've the, read the media reports, but uh, there's been nothing that we've seen yet from the Department of Justice. Uh, if something's going on, obviously we'll find out about it. Uh, you know, right now it, it's, it's hard to speculate on, on rumors, uh, but, you know, if, if something really formal happened from justice, we would, of course, react and take action. All right. I mean, I love how Republicans operate. They're like, oh yeah, we, I mean, like it literally it, it's, it, nothing matters, nothing. It, it's, it's, I think on the scale, like this is how I've kind of pictured it. Progressives will cancel you for like winking at the wrong person in 1975. And then the Democrats like centrists are just like, ah, rape me, doesn't matter. And then um, Republicans just don't care, <laughs> just don't care. Like literally they could have like multiple lawsuits and investigations and they just don't care. How, I mean, if, if, if this is how accountability works, <laughs> where do we see our future going? I mean, <laughs> no, it's, I, I will say one thing. I like Marco Rubio's response. He said he hadn't heard much of it. I'm sure he had no idea who Jill Greenberg was down in Florida. I'm sure he had no connections with any of those people. I'm sure that uh, Marco Rubio just has, he hadn't heard about any of it. This is all news to him. I'm sure just nothing, nothing familiar. I mean, the thing is, Matt Gates is in a very red district. You know, he could be any other Republican would win that district. And again, I'll just keep hitting it over and over again. There is no accountability if they cannot uh, be challenged in their districts if they gerrymander. You know, Florida's not super gerrymandered, but all these Republicans, they only come out against people if they feel the pressure and they feel the shame and there's a chance it could hurt them. When there's literally no chance that any of these people are likely to be hurt, they are not going to take a stand. And uh, that's because they're soulless and they're hacks and they have no shame. But now that shame doesn't work, they've eliminated shame through money, through the entire ecosystem of like untruths, of their entire own information ecosystem that just ignores it. Fox News hasn't touched the Matt Gates thing. Why would they be worried? They're not, not going to worry about a primary. I mean, Nothing. you know, very basically to say, hey, this guy, maybe we don't like him as much as now. But uh, until they, you know, until they are challenged until they live in an ecosystem or an information system where there is you know a chance that they could lose because they own not are only they're not only going after the most far-right partisan voters why would they come out i guess if they have no souls you know that's the calculation they make why would they do anything well what i don't understand is and, and we saw this play out with trump during the primary in 2016 the evangelicals i mean when he started to do well with evangelicals better than like ted cruz who is one um i don't understand how like that that just goes to the side like it's 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 not an issue anymore like we we don't care about morals we only care about democrats morals we only care about like that woman over there i mean i have family members who became evangelical and it's every time i go visit them in virginia it's like it's like a logic i'm like well, i don't understand this this means this okay so so that you care about, but you don't care about that, but you only care about that when it's a Democrat. I'm so confused. It's it's a web. But I mean, Alex, why don't the, do the evangelicals really care about these issues? Like you think that the, all the people cared about Pizzagate would care about Gatesgate. 
Right. I mean, everything's partisan now. I, I can't speak for evangelicals, but they are white evangelicals are, are one of the most, if not the most right wing group of voters in the entire country, which says a lot because we are we have a very right wing Republican Party right now. So they're they're on the extreme right, uh, which is which is troubling in itself. Um, but yeah, look who was president for the last four years. I mean, if 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 nothing, if if he was Teflon, then like no one's going to care about a couple, uh, you know, some some stuff that Matt Gates did. Um, uh, I mean, I guess even if it involves child trafficking, sex trafficking, uh, which is extremely serious, and I think could result in jail time. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised Scalise didn't just go and say the the magic two words that the the right loves, which is cancel culture. Um, everything now we're in this kind of post-truth Trumpian world uh, where everyone kind of invents in QAnon world where everyone invents their own truths, and if they don't like something, they just say it's fake news or propaganda. Um, and if they do, if they like something and it happens to be not true, it doesn't really seem to bother them. But everything, yeah, everything is cancel culture, whether there's merit or not. And it, there's no kind of, there, there's no middle ground, you know. And so um, we're, I think we're just in the, one of the dumbest eras, political eras that we, uh, in a long time. Just inc incredible stupidity of a lot of different people. Um, and and, and we, have, we have these powerful people who are exploiting that. Um, and they're just as stupid as anyone else. So, I mean, I'm just to say this is like a mind boggling time and it's not surprising that Matt Gates is, is honestly, he's probably going to be okay. Um, unless think even if it's illegal, I mean, um, if the DOJ, if, if he gets convicted of something, yeah. yeah, I think there's probably no option uh, other than to resign or, or to have the caucus, you know, get, kick him out. But I just, I mean, after Trump, it's like, uh, anything kind of goes on the right, and we have we have a, you know Jewish space la laser woman Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress. I mean, like, she, I mean, it, it, Paul Gosar, who, who's spoken at a white nationalist conference very recently. I mean, like, there are no standards. There are no standards. And you know, they've created they've created this narrative that they are always under attack. They, of course, control most governments throughout the country, and they, up until this past year. I mean, up until now, controlled the entire federal government, basically. They still have all their judges in there. They have all big business, but they are always under attack. And so when you create that narrative, they can say, hey, look, these people are framing me. These people are trying to cancel me. These people are trying to set us up. They are trying to attack your freedoms and your values. And so it's, of course, an alternate reality. It's not certainly not white, rich people who are under attack in this country. I'll say that much. But that's the framing they create. And so everything is then they can be on the defensive about everything. And they can say, no, that's not true. We're just being set up. And so it's this victim culture as well. You know, it's this, it's this far right wing belief that they are, you know, it's, it's white fragility. And it's this belief that they are the victims, that they are under attack. And then just like I think anything else, Matt Gates is being framed. Matt Gates is having horrible things said about him. The FBI is trying to make his dad wear a wire. You know, it's all these bizarre Same things. Story, yeah. yeah. Which is also, by it. the way, but the two point, I mean, if this story is what, what it seems to be turning out to be, there's a point where Matt Gaetz's lawyer is going to have to say, yo, shut up. Like, this isn't looking good. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, some of that, some of the aspects of the story might be true, but you're like, mm, it's not looking good. And that's what I think is very odd is, is for Steve Scalise or anybody in leadership or anybody in the Republican Party, frankly, to be sticking their neck out for somebody who clearly has an investigation that could go in many different directions, at least just, just bite your tongue. I don't know. I mean, that's my, maybe I'm too old school. <laughs> All right, Alex Koch, Jordan Zacharin, so fun having you on. Come back, Alex, we'd love to have you on. Let us know your next story. Um, really good work. And uh, we will see you next week, Jordan. <laughs> Absolutely, thanks so much.
Thank you. All right, we had a lot more stories we want to get to today, but uh, just we'll we'll get to them tomorrow. We promise. We have some good stuff. Um, but I want to thank you all for being so patient with us. Uh, the last couple of days, I know on on last week we had some special interviews. Thank you to everybody who gave the shout outs for the interviews on the Majority Report uh, yesterday. They were great. If you haven't checked out those special interviews, they are in the archive on YouTube. Um, and I believe that we've released them in other forms as well. Uh, but definitely check out those those one on one interviews really interesting. Um, and yeah, uh, book club. I think many of you have your books right now and we have special book club interviews up on, uh, Patreon right now for our book club members. You can become a book club member, 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 slash the Nomi Keto. And, uh, something just happened to my microphone. Oh, sorry about that, guys. I think I pressed a button. Uh, yeah, so go check out the book club if you can. And we will be putting some of those little little teasers of the book club uh, up as well on YouTube for others to see. All right, we got some shout outs here. Ken M, thank you for the love. Pete from Oakland, welcome back, Nomiki. We missed you terribly during the break. I hope you feel re-energized. Love from the Bay. I It was an interesting vacation. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it probably a little bit tomorrow. Um, on one hand, it was rejuvenating. On the other hand, I got sick. Uh, I was in a very remote, remote place that required a lot of uh, physical work to get to. So I'll just, all I can say is that my thighs are in great shape and I am cleansed in all ways. Kowalski from Nebraska. Tuesday was ruined. Take this bribe. Never again. Thank you, Kowalski. Kyler Asato, the officer who shot, uh, who shot Dante Wright, was on the force for 26 years, police union chief and a police trainer. But sure, she sought, shot him on accident. Well, she's no longer got a job. This is Revolution Pod. There is a push to get rid of police at the University of California system. Professor Dylan Rodriguez out of UC Riverside was talking about this. Oh, I'll go check that out. Thank you for sharing that. Um, everybody else. Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, he has been mixing it up in the live chat. He texted, he was going to be listening. Thank you, Professor Harvey K. Can't wait to catch up with you. And thank you to Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms. And of course, our moderators on YouTube, Bob C, Chokin, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel. And over at Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, Difficult Truth, Nug Wrangler, and our means, as well as Nightbot, Dorsey's favorite non-real bot. I guess all bots are not real. Uh, over at Twitch, thank you guys for keeping the chat rooms troll-free. We will be back tomorrow, Thursday, same time, same place, 3 p.m., Twitch and YouTube, and of course, every day on Patreon. Go join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. It is how we can do the show. All right, everybody, stay in solidarity. Mm-hmm.